I had packed my equipment, already preparing for a return to the cutter when a curious whim took hold of my very soul, and without informing the captain or mate of my intentions, I quietly took hold of my kit and assembled a small group of islanders to take me inland, due north from where our party had grouped around the native king. From that moment onward, I felt as if my own agency was no more. I did not move into the forest blown by unknown winds. I was loosely but precisely drawn by an outside mind. There was a sense of darkness gathering. I felt it then, what was to become later a certainty, that the specimen already had control of me, of all of us on this part of the island. Its white-hot complacence, its complete disregard for the human, these bitternesses were still to be sensed. But I had then, I believe, the first taste of the emptiness outside the mycelium. Hello, this is Ya 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 Ne Ne Ne. My name is Arif. And my name is Ratna. This is our podcast where we are listening to artist contributions in the form of voice messages. And we have excerpts from our archive of radio shows. And today you'll hear an excerpt of The Well, a show at the Ateliers here in Amsterdam. It's a residency program. But before, we got a voice message by Yojin Lee. And I heard it's a very relaxing voice message this time. Extremely relaxing because sleeping and sleep is a big part of her practice. She had a show last year in Linz at BB15. It was titled As Long As There Is Time To Sleep. And that's also how we got to know her because she contacted us for kind of a distributed radio broadcast that was connected to the show. And she sent us a song that we broadcasted called Dormant Buds on Twigs. And would you say that uh, in the show, for instance, the audience was also invited to sleep or to chill a bit? I don't really know. But I know that she does sleeping performances, kind of. And there's a photo I like where she's sleeping in a laundromat on an airbed. But yeah, she sent us a voice message now about algae and about sloths. Difficult word for me. What is a sloth again? These animals that sleep in the tree. Ah, they hang, yeah, in the tree and then they sleep. Yeah, that's exactly what they do. Feels a bit like us now. <laughs> They're very slow, yeah. I'm wondering what we call them in Dutch. Maybe we call them even a liard or something, which literally means like lazy, lazy person or lazy animal in this case. In German, it's Faultier. Hmm. So she sent us a message titled Dear H. Tolls or Mrs. Sloth. That's S-L-O-W. And it's about a type of algae that only live on the back of sloths. They're called Trichophilus valkyrie. I have no idea how to really pronounce this. But I believe you. And basically they grow on the hair of these animals. And so often you see photos of them and they're kind of a bit green because these algae are growing on their hair. I want to hear more about this. Yeah, you're wearing a blue overall today. True. So basically it's like these animals wearing a pyjama of algae. Dear H. Toes or Miss Love, 
I called you the other day. You said you were in your pajamas. Still in pajamas. Still forever. I could live in my pajamas of algae. Forever dreaming of our futures. You listened. I told you how I'm falling. Falling out of sync. Out of sync. Out of time. 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 And time. The digit says there's no more time. But there's no more speed. No more. No speed. No more. We fall asleep in symbiosis. We dream of futures. Nutrients and bodies of water in the terrestrial and in snow and ice. We will evade, evade the trackers because we're so slow. And finally, they will come and stay in pajamas of algae in pajamas of algae. I heard you not slowly. Hey, don't be troubled. I'm here to listen. Chocophilus, Chocophilus. The green algae on my back have ears. They are here to listen. I'm here now. I'm calling you. In pajamas. Still, still in pajamas of algae. I'm still in pajamas of algae.
That was Yojin Lee. Thank you so much, Yojin, for sending this voice message. It was a really nice surprise when I got it. I was listening in an armchair, almost falling asleep. Um, you can find more about her work at N-I-J-O-O-Y, that's yojinreverse.com. And now we're on to the next one. Yeah, we're very relaxed today also because I think we're still a bit recovering from our uh, Halloween weekend. So I'm not even going immediately to the next one because I want to look back at the Halloween weekend. <laughs> no, I really enjoyed it. And um, Arif, I think you also had a great outfit. Thank you. I also liked yours a lot. I think we shouldn't say too much. Keep it a bit of a... A secret? Yeah. Mm, because otherwise next year everyone will go as two quite obscure performance artists. <laughs> How many people understood your outfit? I think like five or six. That's higher than my... Uh, my. Uh, How many got yours? I think there was one... Per okay, so there was one person who would have known for sure and he would be like super excited about it, but he wasn't at the party. So um, then I had to explain it to everyone. Because otherwise it got a bit embarrassing. They were like, why are you? What is this? Um, but one person pointed at me and said, ah, yeah, you're that, you're that artist. But then she couldn't get the name. So it stayed a bit of a mystery. I feel like there is a metaphor for failed artists in there. No one recognizes you. No, 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 no. This was more like, uh, you know, sometimes you do something and then you think, because it is a bit, not like super known that it's like extra cool if that one person in the room would be like whoa you are it's the, it's more like artists artists <laughs> or djs djs you know that few people get like very excited about and then the rest is a bit like mm, okay yeah i don't know if that's uh really a definition of success or just it is. <laughs> <laughs> all right let's we say like this. a podcast podcast <laughs> <laughs> what are you saying? Okay. <laughs> no, I delete myself from this conversation. Well, in the future, that might be possible. You know mm. what I watched this weekend? Tell me. A Chinese science fiction film called The Wandering Earth. It's mm -hmm. in the future. Pretty near future. I think in like 50 years. And uh, the sun is dying. And we are moving Earth to a new solar system. How are we moving it? They installed like hundreds of engines, kind of jet engines on the whole earth. Okay. On like one half of the earth. So the other half is also dark because it's moving away from the sun. And as the sun is dying, it gets really cold. So everyone is, has to move underground. Sometimes you can go sort of on the surface of the earth and you have to wear these thermo suits and look quite cool actually a bit like the overall you're wearing but then in red so i watched that film it's like two hours and basically it looks like a video game hmm. i think i read somewhere it's that animated or something or partly partly yeah i mean there's real actors in there but like lots of special effects mm. and it's like a major production i can't say i really liked it it was kind of interesting especially because for example like the u.s are not in there at all so i think they're on the dark side of the earth but they're not even mentioned so it's like Russia, China, France, bit of Canada, and that's kind of it. Okay, sounds refreshing. <laughs> sounds maybe on purpose, I don't know. Um, but our next part, uh, 
where we dig something up from our archive is also relating to science fiction, right? Yeah, it's a reading by Mark von Schlegel, who's a critic and science fiction writer. He's from the US, but he lives in Germany, I think in Cologne. And he's teaching a writing class at the Städelschule. Um, yeah, we'll listen to an excerpt, but I want to read you like a small quote that I found from an interview with Mark von Schlegel. And it's about criticism and science fiction. He says, these days I look at it like this. For me, the only way to get at the truth is to admit I'm lying from the beginning. So if you ask me for criticism, expect a story. Science fiction helps my criticism. I often mix it in directly now. I found it adds humor, imagination, makes what is often a terrible chore done for money suddenly fun to do. Of course, this means my criticism is pretty out there and appears in publications of the sort rarely available to US readers. But wherever they're interested in cultural criticism by trees, collaborations by time-traveling Stalinist collectives battling time-traveling fascists, fake diaries of schizophrenic 18th century botanists, I'm the go-to guy. This is uh, called Justin Johnson's Journal. Justin Johnson's Journal. Hexahedron, or Justin Johnson's Journal. History's uncanny ability to grow from the unknown seed of genus the trunk of a whole new future reaches culmination with the privately printed manuscript of 1798 bearing the rather lugubrious title The Final Journal of Justin Johnston ESQFRS This though no one noted its appearance when it came Beyond the transit of Venus of 1769 and the death in Hawaii exactly 10 years later, Cook's particulars, in contrast to the other events of the chaotic and world-building 1770s, never proved a central concern to historians of the 20th century. Even those specialists of Pacific history, of colonialism, of enlightenment and exploration, etc., inclined in Captain Cook's direction, avoided specific study of the scientists who accompanied him on his voyages. Justin Johnson was the youngest of Cook's botanists on the last voyage. Johnston's later career, for reasons obvious to any reader of the journal, would prove non-existent. If the final journal is remembered at all, it is only as a gruesome interference in the repression blocking memory of the front lines of the early colonial invasions. Johnston tells Cook's end plainly. On land to discuss with the king certain crimes perpetrated against his ship, the Endeavor, and to establish a number of astronomical observations, Cook's party was set upon by an unruly mob of Hawaiians. One and all, the English seamen swam to the Endeavour's pinnace, then moored as close to shore as her draw would allow. Johnston himself was the first to look back and see Captain James T. Cook still standing knee-deep in the waves, bleeding from the head. Even the islanders, as Johnston tells it, hesitated to stone him to death, awed by the irony. The captain had crossed great oceans in a personal commitment to destroy their world with disease, misinformation, and worse. 
but he couldn't cross half a league of a harbor to save his own life. James T. Cook, saint of oceanography, astronomy, geology, zoology, cultural anthropology, history, biogenetics. He who gave Mad King George a watery third of the globe could not swim. Johnston has an eye for detail. The laughter and mockery, the sound of the rock against Cook's skull, the scarlet, white-bone dismemberment division of the body, the joyous celebrations of the mob he lays bare as clear evidence of total indigenous opposition to the English Enlightenment from day one. After his death, beneath his eccentric, early Victorian exterior, Mr. Johnston was revealed to have been a woman. No, it is not surprising that the final journal, after its first uncelebrated private printing, remained a dusty, ne'er-cracked volume on the musty shelves of the most unexplored stacks in the world's soon-to-be, unfortunately, damp libraries. There are some in the more volatile circles who will point to its marginality as evidence of the ancient plot continuing through generations. Lieutenant Cook, James Cook, Royal Navy, they argue, that admirable father of the biosphere as we understand it today, the fellow who named so much of now lost Eurasia Botany Bay, came in fact as a bloody scourge of syphilis into the happy, healthy world, completely unprepared to comprehend the degree of the insanity of his reason. And no other text, they say, so demonstrates the degree of this insanity as the journal of Justin Johnston. Yet why then, with the aid of one of their countless university presses, have they not printed it themselves? The fact is, this work of Johnston's so-called madness was indeed the first inking of the Armageddon into whose wreckage we print this remembrance today, in defiance of the iron spore. It is still impossible to reprint, reprint the journal in its entirety, we quote some familiar lines here only, revelatory of the monster's first appearance in our minds. I had packed my equipment, already preparing for a return to the cutter, when a curious whim took hold of my very soul, and without informing the captain or mate of my intentions, I quietly took hold of my kit and assembled a small group of islanders to take me inland, due north from where our party had grouped around the native king. From that moment onward, I felt as if my own agency was no more. I did not move into the forest blown by unknown winds, I was loosely but precisely drawn by an outside mind. There was a sense of darkness gathering. I felt it then, what was to become later a certainty, that the specimen already had control of me, of all of us on this part of the island. Its white-hot complacence, its complete disregard for the human, these bitternesses were still to be sensed. But I had then, I believe, the first taste of the emptiness outside the mycelium. Wow.
With two native guides abreast and two behind, naked save loincloth and sweat, I penetrated a rising forest of stunted Ohio Lahua trees. In an hour's time, we had forced our way through the dense undergrowth of fern and vine to discover a perfectly geometrical void carved out from the bare, sorry, carved out among the evenly spaced Metrosideros polymorpha. Upon a bare hexagonal ground, with edges near 10 meters each, an apparent three-dimensional hexagonal sided solid seemed to be infringing. But it shouldn't have been possible, you see and had something to do with the nausea that burdened us all. For there is no possible such hexagonal solid. There is a solid made of hexagons and squares, but that was not this. A series of linked hexagons folded out of the earth, gridding lens planes issued out in perfect mathematical impossibility. What passed all understanding was how this truncated octagon could seem to pack the sphere of our world inside it. A perfect half-hexahedron of emptiness forced from the forest center. Had the ideal platonic solid revealed itself conscious, ethereal, I entered the space alone. Conventional reality drifted away. Leaves and twigs blew out from the void and fell to the heated earth. Upon that rigidly defined six-sided area of moist black soil, there showed not a single weed. But two mushrooms grew. In the clearing center, I crouched to examine the two numbers of an unknown specimen, a flowering toadstool, each three inches in height and two in diameter. I knelt to gather them, lightheaded with the flush of discovery. I was foiled in the attempt. I found them made of the most resilient stuff. It seemed that there was no sufficient blade with which to take them in my possession. I knew somehow they would not be moved. But a flowering fungus? And unable to bring even its petals home. But how I observed, a true novelty was laid out before me, such as I had been searching my entire life. These bastards walked a line between both parental genera, note new species, not only in the spreading of cups or the position and color of flowers, but in how especially all the parts of the flower, with the only exception being the pollen itself, displayed perfectly geometrical proportions, sketched below, even with six-fold irregularity displayed in the unfolding of the little hexagonal petals. The petals were like the thinnest silvery stone self-generating crystal fusing with life, a breed truly between, thoroughly refuting the ancient doctrine of Aristotle, insisting on the eternal pro procreation of both. We shall not go so far as to quote in its entirety the first extant passage describing and naming the iron spore. Neurospora Regina has already implanted its rigid determinism into all our worlds. As first usher of the news so abysmal in regards to the fate of human civilization, and Australasia in particular, the final journal remains today unprintable. Yet printed it was this one time. Johnston later determined an argument delivered in letters to an adverse adversary that the plant had drawn Cook all that way to Hawaii and killed him flagrantly, with irony, only so that Johnston's testimony might find a way into the libraries of the Royal Society 
and be printed in the single self-published edition entering the bibliography of delusion only as self-evidence of that bibliography's burgeoning irrelevance. We certainly cannot blame Johnston himself. Though he attempted to, he brought nothing home to the Royal Society but his testament. He did no more than attempt to advertise his recorded observations. He published these with his family's last savings, only so they might be of use. He did not dislodge the specimens from the ground and import them to send the hex plague spreading from the British Museum outward over the globe, though he thought he might dislodge them from his own mind. This single release, this evidently self-printed book, this old forgotten volume sitting in the chambers of a few libraries not yet torn down, was finally deemed worthy of survival because it came with numerous diagrams. The biomathematical notations increasingly taking up its pages, finally swallowing the narrative by shocking geometries and patterns impossible to recognize, even by molecules around them, generated nauseous unfamiliarity to the point of chill, gathering dampness on their inked string structures. Did the iron spore forge a history to make itself readable by machine from the outset? Experts are now quite certain that its coming, had the work never been printed, might have been prolonged centuries by any properly functioning intellectual society. By then, many might well have escaped to space. But humankind endeavored to digitize its literary heritage, attempting to do so without the 2,000-year collaboration of true librarians across time overnight. In one collection of criminality, much dampness had gathered, and though generally incomprehensible to humans, the final journal of Justin Johnston's minutely imprinted hexahedronical topologies by that time had proved peculiarly inspirational to mold. So this was Mark von Schlegel, recorded at The Well. And I have to thank also Anders Dixon, who um, was by then uh, still studying at the ateliers and invited Mark von Schlegel over. So thank you, Anders. There is a bonus track also, right? We want more. Yeah, speaking of which, I think uh, Mark has got one short last thing to read, um, to read us out of this hour of programming. So uh, take it away, Mark. Thank you very much. It's kind of a... I don't know if reading is the right word. I'll do it my best. This is called Dreaming the Mainstream, a fantasy. Dreaming the Mainstream. Dreaming the Mainstream. Dreaming the Mainstream, a fantasy. Let's get some... Dreaming. Dreaming the Mainstream. Dreaming the Mainstream, a fantasy. Some still shelter behind those shards left standing, but if they look, they will see that the traffic is moving freely in both directions. Peter Nichols, Mainstream Writers of Science Fiction, The Encyclopedia of Science Fiction, New York, St. Martin's, 1995, page 770. We laugh today at how the Saturnites once misjudged the Martian Rebellion. 
But how greater our own delusion as it rises to fill from one end to the other all that we can see. How wide the great reaches of intergalactic space and how unwise the beast that would fill it up. The deepest origins are necessarily dark, but in primordial time, a monkey on the shores of Gondwana land watched a monster arise from the surface of a sea. The monkey could not yet phrase the question, what beast has arisen whose comprehension is darker, colder, more glittering and eldritch than this great monster? The monkey screamed. There came then the mainstream, a milk and honey rich way. For Mega Annua, the beast bathed free in a literal, not figural, Garden of Eden located near Gobekli Tepe between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. The beast's pleasures at this time were personal. As it indulged, it looked away. Dreaming the mainstream. Fantasy. Dreaming the mainstream. A fantasy. Instantly, religion, mysticism, and poetry rose up, and by means of agriculture, covered over the Tigris Valley. They buried the mainstream and reported it dead. The monkey now beheld the monster occupying a space not much larger than the eye of a needle. Yet still the monkey screamed, And while it did, the monster fed. Of all it tasted, the monster liked satire the best. Through satire, the beast gained direct access to delectables that layered out the mainstream in seemingly endless depth and direction. Though invisible, the monster grew so large via satire that two philosophers, David Hume and Jean-Jacques Rousseau, actually remarked on its existence. Those following resolved that they didn't actually believe the beast was real, but were forced to proceed as if they did, so that they could kill it. But you just can't kill the beast. You just can't kill the beast. The monster discovered the nation. It liked nations even more than satire. It made many nations and dined upon them, even while they fed upon one another's myths on its new rock tables. Via nations, the monster even reached the moon. And there, in free space, the beast encountered the grid of art, which is neither real nor not real. In art, the beast saw itself. It saw itself seeping into the world through gaps, cracks in enormous buildings and dried paint through frames and walls of infinitely scalable modules, math dust sparkling around the edges of portals. Soon, due to an experimental architecture project gone awry, the whole earth below was encrusted in periodic quasi-crystal, like to an enormous metal jewel. And on what were now the shores of New Zealand, the gazing monkey stopped screaming by recourse to taste On a desert stage of pure math, the monster dreamed the mainstream once more, 
astride the Milky Way. All right, listeners, that's uh, it for this morning. Thank you very much, Mark. Thank you, Thank you very much. And we're sending our love down.